my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Let me ask you a question. What if I'm wrong? You ever thought about that? What if I'm wrong about something? The ramifications of being wrong. Getting something wrong can have some regrettable consequences. America went to war against Saddam Hussein because our leadership thought he had weapons of mass destruction, and they were wrong. And the consequences of that are the world that we have today, and I'm not sure the world we have today is necessarily safer. America pulled out of Afghanistan thinking that they would stand without us, but we were wrong. And of course, there were some catastrophic consequences to that. Getting people wrong can have some uh, dire consequences as well. I remember Michael and I got it wrong about a man that we met at the Lowe's that we thought was just a, a father who needed help, and it turns out he was a huckster and he took our money. Others have mistaken people, and they've lost much more than that. Maybe they've lost their entire life savings. Some have mistaken people, and they've lost their lives. Some of you will be old enough to remember Jim Jones of Guyana fame, right? And all the people, the children, the women, the men that lost their lives because of him. Or or David Koresh in, in Waco. They got him wrong, and they lost their lives. Or how about this one, Marshall Applewhite? I bet you, bet you don't know who Marshall Applewhite was. He was the guy who... Uh, thought that the Hale-Bopp comet, when it was coming close to the earth, that if they killed themselves, their immortal souls would fly up and catch the Hale-Bopp, Hale-Bopp comet, and, uh, and they would go off into I don't know where. What if I get it wrong? Being wrong can have some really serious repercussions, some grave ramifications. So turn to Mark 8, verse 27, and we're going to continue with Mark's biography of Jesus. And I believe there's going to, we're going to see three things in this text that, that Mark, or excuse me, that Jesus is saying, we have to get it right. We have to get it right about him. And if we get it wrong, then there will be a grave, that'll be a grave mistake. And I actually, I actually mean a pun there. I'm actually intending a pun there. It'll be a grave mistake. So here's the first thing that I believe Jesus wants us to get right. Jesus wants us to get his identity right. So in verse 27, we read, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly, that is Jesus, strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Our culture is fraught with an identity crisis. Um, we, we say that identity means more than anything, but we don't mean our character or our behavior when we say that. We, we, in our culture, we're saying that racial identity, gender identity makes you who you are. And our culture says that uh, that makes you either a victim or a, an oppressor. Our culture is in strange, in a strange place these days. You can choose your identity subjectively, at least as it relates to gender. No regard to biology or ontology, but when it comes to things like, uh, like your race, I mean, those things have a biological anchor, right? So it's like you're applauded and you're lauded when you claim to be a woman and you're a biologically a man, but you're ostracized if you claim to be one race 
when you're really not that race at all. There is such confusion about identity. Well, I'm telling you, Jesus in his day wanted to make sure that his disciples were not confused about his identity. They weren't struggling with gender and that sort of thing. But he wanted to make sure that they knew who he was. And I believe, and I think I can say this, he wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know his identity as well. He's in the northwest part of of Israel. He's above the Sea of Galilee. I'm not even sure that would actually be be Israel still, but he's up there and uh, he's walking along with his his, uh, disciples and he asks them, he says, guys, who do people say that I am? And so his 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 apprentices, they, uh, they look at him and they say, well, um, people say you're John the Baptist resurrected. Others say you're Elijah come back from the dead. You're, resurrection, you're the resurrection of Elijah. And they would have some reference for that. The Old Testament promised that Elijah would precede the day of the Lord. So they were kind of looking for him in some way. Others said, hey, you're a prophet like the Old Testament prophets. You're one like Isaiah, that sort of thing. And I think all of that, this is just my opinion, but I think all of that was just a setup. I think Jesus is just setting them up to ask this question. But who do you guys say that I am? And Peter answers for the group, and this is what he says. You are the Messiah. Now, I'm going I'm to spend a little time in words here. The word Messiah in our English Bibles is a transliteration of the word in Hebrew, Messiah, which literally means anointed one, which literally means chosen one. The chosen one, this person who's chosen, and and they reference this as being chosen by God. This chosen one, he would be anointed by God. He'd be be pointed out with oil. So that's where the anointing comes comes from. But the, the idea of Messiah is chosen one. The Greek word, or excuse me, the word that we have in our English Bibles, Christ, is a transliteration of the Greek word Christos. So basically what we've done is we've picked up the Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christos, and we've made them into two Englishized words, but they both mean the very same thing. They both mean chosen one. Christ is not a surname for Jesus. It's not it's like, I'm Jimmy Acre. It's not Jesus Christ. That's not his surname. It's his title. Jesus is the chosen one. In fact, I was sitting there just a minute ago, and I, and I thought I'd say this to you. I would love it if you'd join me. And as you read your Bibles, always say in your mind, Jesus, the chosen one. Jesus, the one chosen by God. Jesus, the one anointed by God, picked by God. Now, in, in the time of the Bible... At the time of the New Testament, the Old Testament had told us a lot about this one that would be chosen by God. It had, it had pointed to him. It said, there's coming a chosen one, and he's going to be this, 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 and this. And so we learned some things about the chosen one who was to be chosen in the future, right? Let me, let me just share a few. I mean, there's, this is not an exhaustive list. There's lots of other things we could say. But first and maybe foremost, the chosen one was going to be chosen to be a king, but not just any king. He was going to be chosen to be the king of kings. The chosen one was going to be chosen to be a descendant of Abraham, and he was going to be a descendant of King David. The chosen one would rule over God's people, and he would deliver God's people from their enemies. 
This one that God would eventually choose, this chosen one would rule, listen to this, over all the earth. And this chosen one would be eternal. Figure that one out, right? They're being told that the, the chosen one would be eternal and that he would reign forever. His reign would never come to an end. We were told that the chosen one would be a king from eternity past. Not only would he be a king when he's chosen, but he would be a king who was a king from long ago, from eternity past. How, how, do you, how does that figure into that? How does that make sense to anyone? Okay? And that his kingdom would have no end. He, this chosen one, would reign as king in righteousness and he would bring peace to all the earth. He would rescue his people. Now listen to this. The chosen one would rescue his people by suffering for them. So there's lots of verses I could read. I just want to read you two sets. And, and they, 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 these two passages inculcate most everything I read to you. One was from Daniel chapter 7. You can just listen. But it's Daniel seven thirteen. And Daniel sees a vision. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that would have been God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all the people's nations and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. When Jesus came and said, I'm the son of man, everybody understood. He was talking about this particular passage pointing to which the Hebrews all thought pointed to the one who would be chosen. Isaiah 9, you'll recognize this right away because we read it every Christmas. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God, Eternal Father. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So when Jesus said to, excuse me, when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, this is what he's saying. We believe you're the predicted chosen one. We believe you're the one that God promised that he would choose and you are a king and we believe you'll reign forever and we believe you'll reign over all the earth. That is what they were. That's what Peter was saying on behalf of all the disciples to Jesus that day. But Peter didn't stop there. Mark, that's all Mark says Peter said, but we all know that's not all that Peter said. And I've tried really hard to stick just to Mark's biography, but I just felt like I had to, I had to finish Peter's statement here. Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So that's what Matthew records. Peter and the other disciples, though not clearly, I want to make this clear. They did not understand all of this clearly, but they did understand that there's something about Jesus that's more than just being a man. They, they called him the son of God. They recognized that there was something divine about Jesus. After all, remember, we've already seen things like him walking on water calming storms with, with just his words, raising the dead. I mean, they've already seen those sort of things and they recognize there's something about you that's divine. And, uh, and though that was probably blasphemous for them to, to say, and I'm, not, and I'm not trying to imply that they had the same understanding that we have today, that God is 
one being, but three persons. And I'm not saying they understood that like we do. I don't think they did, actually. But they understood there's something divine about Jesus. So they came to this conclusion that Jesus is the chosen king, the promised one to come, but he was also more than that. So here's my question before we move on. And here's my question. Who do you believe Jesus to have been, or who do you believe he is? Because that's the question before us. This is what Jesus, I think, wants, wanted them to get right, and it's what I think he wants you and me to get right today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, do you think he's that chosen one that God promised? Do you think he's the son of God? Lots of folks, they read about Jesus and they like him. I mean, I mean, if you're, if you're someone who's for the underdog, and if you're someone who believes that we should care for people and others, if that's just in your nature, and, you know, you like Jesus. And lots of people say about Jesus, he's a good man. After all, he taught us to serve one another, right? And he taught us, he taught us not just to serve one another, but to love each other, and even to go so far as to love our enemies. But it's not enough, I don't think, for us to believe that Jesus was just a good man. And, and I've done this many times before, but I'm going to do it again this morning. C.S. Lewis popularized an argument that had been around since the mid-1800s. Right? He lived in the mid-1900s, but this argument had been around since the mid-1800s. In mere Christianity, here's what Lewis argues, and I'm quoting him. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall on your fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left us that he's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he is neither lunatic nor fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, this is C.S. Lewis's word still, I have to accept the view that he is and was God. Now, William Lane Craig, who is a a present-day philosopher and uh, probably anthropologist too, but an apologist, uh, William Lane Craig says that C.S. Lewis's premise was wrong. One of his premises was wrong. And his first premise that Jesus claimed to be God, William Lane Craig said, that's not necessarily true. Maybe Jesus never claimed to be God. Maybe his disciples made that up afterward and they put those words in Jesus' mouth that he was God. And so that, that way Jesus grew into be this legend. Now, now listen, William Lane Craig would agree with C.S. Lewis at the outcome. He's just simply saying, there's a flaw in your argument, Mr. Lewis, about the legend thing. I mean, that, that Jesus may have been a legend and he may not have claimed to have been God. But in 1950, Lewis kind of addresses this in, in an essay he wrote, What Are We to Make of Jesus? He, he rebuts, I think, this idea that, that Jesus' followers made it up that he claimed to be God. 
And Lewis shows how unlikely it would have been for Jews to invent the idea that God became a man. Here's what Lewis says with regard to this. This is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation which of all the nations was most convinced that there was only one God and that there could not possibly be another. It is very odd that his horrible, that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the world least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even of the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine at all easily. And so, beloved, you have to decide, right? You have to decide. And and the way we couch that argument today, we say that Jesus is either a uh, lunatic claiming to be God and not being so, or he's a liar. He made himself out to be God, but he knew he wasn't, or he is Lord. Of course, we could add legend in there. You have to decide. Which of those do you believe to be true? Who is Jesus? You have to decide. And, And I think, really, I think eternity rests on your answer to that question. Because if you get it wrong, and Jesus happens to be Lord, like he claimed, if if you get it wrong, you will die and not live again. If you get it wrong at the return of Jesus, you will not be rescued by Jesus. And instead, you will suffer what he calls the second death. So number one, you've got to get Jesus' identity right. Jesus is saying that. Second, we have Jesus saying, you have to get Jesus' mission right. So in verse 31, Mark continues and he writes, Then Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man, there's that Daniel term, to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Jesus is not content with you getting his identity right. You've got to get his mission right as well. Now, there's several mysteries that are associated with the mission of Jesus. Paul speaks of these mysteries. One of them was the mystery of how God was going to unite Jews and Gentiles into one people. You know, the Jews definitely didn't see that coming. The Gentiles didn't see it coming either. That was a mystery that Paul says was revealed to us at the coming of Jesus. But another mystery is how could Jesus rescue us by dying for us? Isaiah 53. How could the chosen one rescue us by dying for us, but at the same time defeat our enemies triumphantly? How could the chosen one do both of those, right? How could he die and win at the same time? And so the mystery was revealed. And the mystery was this, that was revealed in Jesus, that the chosen one would not accomplish all of this in one stage, but rather in two. He would not do everything at one moment, but he would do it, if you would, in two moments of time, although... Maybe that's not a correct way of saying it. Jesus, the chosen one, would come and inaugurate his kingdom with his presence. And then he would die to save us from our greatest enemy. And the enemy that he came to save us from is death. And only later will he destroy all his enemies and realize the grandeur of his kingdom. In Mark 31 
Jesus now begins to explain them clearly. He says, guys, I'm going to die. And I'm not just going to die, guys. I'm going to die at the hands of Jewish religious leadership. And, uh, and he talks about this often. And he talks about it clearly. And they understand it so much that Peter gets irritated, pulls Jesus aside and says, you've got to stop talking like this. You can't talk like this. That's not going to happen. We know that cannot happen. That's not, why? He doesn't understand the mystery. He doesn't understand what Jesus is going to do, right? And so instead of listening to Peter, it says that Jesus pulls back, looks at all his disciples, and in front of all of them rebukes Peter and says, Peter, get behind me. You're being Satan. You're being my adversary now. You're not thinking like God thinks. You're thinking like man thinks. And you know, I thought about that and I just, man, it had to sting Peter, don't you think? That had to sting big time. But Jesus doesn't leave them hopeless in the passage. He tells them of his resurrection. He told them that he would be restored to life. And in time, he would tell them everything. He would tell them of his return to heaven. He would tell them that you are being entrusted now with the kingdom. And your mission is to take the kingdom good news to all the earth. And you're to help other people know the chosen one and follow him. He would promise them that one day he would return. He would tell them that he's going to destroy all of our enemies forever. He would tell them that one day he's going to raise them from the dead and give them eternal life and that they would never die again. Jesus as the chosen king will indeed one day bring peace to all the earth and he will reign over all the earth and all that is broken now. And I told Willie just a few minutes ago, we're all broken people. He's going to fix all of our brokenness. He's going to fix our broken world. And he will rule over his people, those of us that love him, those of us that are part of his kingdom. He will rule over us with joy and righteousness from then and forevermore. But it's important that you get his mission now. You get the first time mission. He came to die for us. He came to taste death for us. He came to defeat death for us. I tell you what, death is all around us. Death is all around me. And I don't mean it's around me any more than you, but it's just like, man, I wasn't expecting Gene to die. And then, I, and then, you know, with Mark's death, I mean, that's just brought back so many things. My mother-in-law is, I mean, she is dying. She's not eating. And, and that's where Anna is. So, I mean, death is all around. Jesus came to defeat death when he came. And he did that by submitting to death. Look at 1 Peter. Well, no, don't look. Just listen. 1 Peter 3.18, if you want to write them down. For the chosen one also suffered for sins once for all. That was what, that's what Isaiah 53 was that I read you at the beginning. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love to, toward us that while we were yet sinners, the chosen one died for us. Romans 5.6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, the chosen one died for the ungodly. 1 Corinthians 15.3, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that the chosen one died for our sins according to the scriptures. And there are literally, literally hundreds, I don't want to exaggerate, there are dozens and dozens of verses in the Bible that tell us that Jesus 
took our place, that he died in our place, that he substituted his life in death for ours. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We die because of sin. All of us will die because we're sinners. So to rescue us from death, Jesus, the chosen one, the son of God, was willing to undergo, enter into death for us. So Hebrews 2.9 says, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels because he was made like us for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. You need to get the mission right. The mission of Jesus was that he came to die for us. And I do not mean by that it's just limited to that. Jesus' mission had other parts to it. He came to reveal to us God. You know, make no mistake, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Jesus came to reveal misconceptions that his people had about himself. He came to reveal God clearly to us. He came to correct misconceptions of his law in the Old Testament. He came, remember the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, this is what the law says, but I tell you, you've got it wrong. This is what it literally means. Remember that? He came, to, he came to correct misconceptions about the law of God. So that when he stood before Pilate, he said to Pilate, I have come to testify to the truth. Jesus' mission was bigger, but Jesus namely came to do one thing. And that is to submit himself to death for us so that we might live again. So Matthew 20, 28 says, just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His mission was to die a substitute for me. His mission was to die for me, to be raised from the dead so that I might have my life back. Now, maybe you're asking like I do. Do you think, do you think deeply? I want you to think deeply, right? One question that I, that, that I ask, why? Why did Jesus have to die for me to be forgiven? Why couldn't God have said, boom, you're forgiven? I mean, he's God after all, right? Why couldn't he just say, hey, I forgive you all and I'm going to redeem you all. Why couldn't he have done that? I don't have an answer to that. But I do know this, that God says I had to do it this way to be just and righteous. And even that I don't understand exactly. But that is what he claimed. I died for you so that I could be just and righteous. Here's the verse, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, the chosen one. God presented him at the mercy seat or as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, that would be Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Now listen, so that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I don't get it, guys. I don't know why exactly Jesus had to die. But God says it's so that, my so that I could be just and righteous in forgiving you your sin. Let's, let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for, 
Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for loving us so much that you would be willing to enter in what was the penalty of our sin. You would be willing to die for us, Jesus. Thank you for the humiliation of uh, of entering into our humanity and then dying naked on a cross, giving your life for us. Thank you. Lord, help us to understand your mission, even though we may not understand the, all the whys and the, the intricacies behind it. Lord, we know that you died for us so that we might live again. And we know you died for us because you are righteous and you are just. Thank you. Third, we have to get Jesus' identity right. We have to get Jesus' mission right. These are the words of Jesus. And here's my third one. We have to get Jesus' call right. We have to get the call of Jesus right. What response does Jesus ask from you and from me? Now here's where it's going to get heavy. 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To get his call right, there are three things that Jesus says he wants of us to be a part of his kingdom. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to follow after me, here's what I'm asking of you. And there's three things. The first one is that we need to deny ourselves. Now, a lot of times we think that means that God just wants me to deny every desire that I have. You know, that boat I want to get, those new golf clubs, uh, you know, I want or... Or maybe something, maybe not so crass as material things, but something immaterial like that relationship I want, like that success I want, or that um, meaningful work that I want. A lot of times we have a misconception that God is just saying, deny every desire in your heart. You're not to have any of them. That's not what he's asking for. When, When he talks about deny yourself here, this word, most of the time it's used, and it can be used to deny, like I deny that that statement you just made is true. It can be used that way. But most of the time, this word is used in association with a person. It's used with disowning someone or renouncing someone. Like Peter, this is the word that's used when Peter denies Jesus. So the context seems to be that Jesus is calling us to deny our, our person, to deny ourselves as the authority in our lives, to deny ourselves as the lead in our lives. And by extension, he's asking us to deny ourselves as being the primary arbiter of our wills and giving and surrendering, by extension, that to him. That's what he's asking. You have to deny yourself as the arbiter of your will, and you need to surrender that to me and make me the primary director of your will. And Jesus is not making a statement about whether your, your will, your soul is good or bad, yourself is good or bad. He's just simply saying, your primary allegiance needs to be me, not yourself. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to decide. The word for repent is metanoia, which has to do with changing your mind. You've got to change your mind as to who is going to be king in your life. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. You've got to, Jesus is asking you to make him king over the kingdom of your heart. Will you do that? 
He goes on, second, we must take up our cross. Again, we allegorize this as anything unpleasant in our life. And it could be something as simple as our spouse's irritating behavior or habits, right? That's a cross I got to bear, you know, because I'm married to him or whatever. Um, so we, it could be something like that, or it could be something really serious, like I've got some kind of debilitating disease that doesn't go away, and it affects my life forever. No, that's the cross I've got to bear. And what we mean is this, any struggle or suffering that we've got in our life, if I'm willing to bear that hardship and follow Jesus, that's my cross. Well, I guarantee you that is not what Jesus meant. When he said, take up your cross, he, crucifixion was about dying. It was about death. And when he said, take up your cross, it was the habit of the Romans to make the, the crucifying, the person to be crucified. It was the habit of them making that person carry at least the cross beam of his cross to the place where he would die. Jesus is asking that we voluntarily be willing to die for him and his kingdom. He's asking that your allegiance be such that you would be willing to actually give your life for him. That's what he's, he says, if you want to follow me, You've got to be willing to give up even your very, your very life. Total allegiance. Number three. And then he says, and follow me. You want to follow me? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. The follow me means Jesus is saying, obey me. You must be willing to obey me. Jesus would say often things like, if you love me, you will obey me. Or why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? And this is why he told us when you go make disciples, go teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Go teaching them to obey everything that I've told you to do. And I think in a way, denial of oneself and carrying one's cross and following Jesus are maybe saying the same thing three different ways. To be a part of the kingdom, you must be willing to change your mind and say, I am willing to step down off the throne of my life and let Jesus be king in my life. Now, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Which of us can do that? Who can do that? Who can give their will, their life, their heart to follow Jesus? Well, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus knows we're but dust. He knows that we, this would always be an imperfect gift of allegiance. We're going we're gonna to continue to fight to get back up on the throne of our lives, our entire life, until the day we meet Jesus. I, I believe that. But you know what? When we understand the love of Jesus, when we understand the love of God, the creator, that he would be willing to become like Jimmy. And I don't mean Jimmy with all his brokenness. I mean to, to, to bear in himself the frailties of my humanity. When, he, when I realized that God was willing to do that, and when I realized that Jesus was willing to submit himself to death which is the, the, the penalty for my sin. He was willing to let himself die for my sin. When I realize, realize all that, it's the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus in my heart that lets me, moves me to be willing to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. And I'm so ashamed of all the times that I haven't done that. We love Jesus not because we're so wonderful. We love him because he, he initiated it. He loved me first. He died for me. 
He entered into my humanity. He created me. He cares about me. He's loved me first. That's why you and I can love him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For the love of the chosen one compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. It is the love of Jesus that motivates me to love him back. Romans 5, 5, the hope will, this hope will not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It was given to us. Jesus is asking a lot from us. He's, he's asking us to choose him over ourselves. He's asking us to choose allegiance to him that would be so utmost that you would be willing to give up your life now, you would be willing to not live and die for him. But you know, it's not just his love that motivates. He gives us an actual reason to contemplate this appeal. Look at the next verses. He says, this is why you should be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Because it's the only way, the only way you're going to get to have life beyond death. It's the only way you're going to get to live beyond death. Verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the good news. And I'm going to interject the words of the kingdom here. The good news of the kingdom. Because that's what the gospel is. It's the good news of the kingdom. Will save it. Whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the kingdom, they will save it. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you live for your life now, you'll save it. I mean, you'll have your life. You'll get to live it the way you want. But in the end, you'll lose your life to death. But if you're willing to lose your life now to him, if you're willing to say, yes, you be king, you take my life. He says, you will save your life. You will save it because King Jesus will give it back to you on the day he returns and he resurrects you back to embodied life. You will live with him forever in his kingdom. He continues verse 36. These are not Jimmy's words. These are the words of our king. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? He asked that rhetorical question. Here's the question. What benefit is it for you to gain the whole world, but in the end you lose your life? What benefit is it for you to gain all the power and all the privilege and all the prestige and all the possessions? I mean, you live high on the hog. You're one of the billionaires of our generation. You live for yourself your entire life. You enjoy it, but then you die, and that's the end. He says, what benefit is that? Well, listen, if you don't know Jesus and the love of Jesus, why would you? I mean, all, all you think is all I've got is however many years until I die. Jesus tells us that's not the end. You can live again. Jesus in another place told another man he, about a man who built bigger barns and amassed great fortune. And then he said, man, I'm going to sit back and enjoy it. And you remember what Jesus said to him, right? You fool, you fool. Today, your life is required of you. Today, you're going to, so you build all these bigger barns so you can live out your life in ease. But now, hey, you're dead, you fool. 
Jim Elliott, the missionary to the, to the Motolone people, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that, beloved, is what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying that exact same thing. Why would you not be willing to love Jesus and give him your life if it means you get to live with him forever in joy in a world that's redeemed? What is more valuable than your life? What is more valuable than your life than to be alive and not dead? This is the pearl of great price. This is the treasure of the field. It is life forever being rescued from death, which is the penalty of our sin, and living with God and others who you love in paradise that is not broken and corrupted by sin. I, I know I, I, y'all have pushed back on me and I get it. I get it. I am not trying to say, Jesus, he affects my life now. He gives me joy and he gives me, he gives me joy and he gives me grace and he makes me, I told a guy not too long, he makes me a better man. He makes me a better father, a better husband, a better, he makes me a better man today, now right? But I'm telling you, if I'm just a better man only to die, and that'd be the end of me, then so what? But it's not the end of us. Jesus said, I will raise you from the dead. You will live forever with me. Then there's this last warning, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now I'm going to couch this, these words of Jesus in the positive. Whoever loves and owns Jesus now as his or her king, among a generation of people who do not love Jesus and reject him, then on the day when Jesus comes again, he will gladly give to you his, his approval and affirmation. He will gladly own you as his own before his Father and before the angels of heaven. On that day, Jesus comes. He's going to raise all of us as kingdom people from death, restore us to embodied life. We will, he will welcome us into his kingdom and we will skip out of the stalls like a calf that's being set free in the morning. No more sorrow, no more sadness, no more death. And we will be reunited to our loved ones in embodied life. This is my hope. My shepherd will breathe again. My daddy will breathe again. Gene Crow will breathe again. And we will see each other. So maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're wondering, can I trust Jesus? I want to tell you, you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus to be with you, to walk with you. You cannot trust Jesus to micromanage your life free of pain and free of suffering. You cannot trust him because he never promised that. I know some believers believe maybe that he has, but he has never promised to micromanage your life so that sorrow and sickness and suffering come to your life. Um, I mean, he's sovereign over all of that. We heard a testimony today how God is sovereign over all of that. But he's never promised to micromanage your life free of pain. In fact, he said, in this life, you will have tribulations, quote, unquote, our king. You'll have struggles and sorrows and it'll hurt. And it's not going to be all that easy all the time, right? But here's what he has promised you. And I tell you, it's true. It's been true in my life. He has promised he will never, ever leave you. 
And he will walk with you every step of the way. You will not be alone. And he knows your hurts. He knows some of you sitting here, you're hiding your hurt from us. You're hurting something terrible on the inside. I'm telling you, Jesus knows. He loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. And he's with you even in this moment. And here's his promise. I will rescue you in the end. I will rescue you in the end. You may succumb to whatever, but I will rescue in the end. With him, it will all be all right. So some of you this morning, it's time for you to surrender your allegiance to Jesus. I mean, it's time. You've been on the fence. You've been studying Jesus from afar. And it's time. It's time for you to surrender your allegiance to Jesus. It's, but it's time for you to step down. And it's time for you to let Jesus step up. So what are you waiting for? If that's you, what are you waiting for? Why, why not today get out of your seat and walk to the front and say in front of everyone, Jesus is my king. I'm denying myself. I'm, I'm picking up my cross and I'm following him. For some of you, it's time to openly declare Jesus is king. And you know how you do that? You do that by being baptized. It's time for some of you to get out of your seat. I don't know why, but it's time for you to get out of your seat and say, King Jesus, I'm sorry. I have not been baptized, but I, you are my king. And I want to follow you. And, and that's, that's one of the first things he asks us to do. Let the world know. Put on the wedding band of baptism and tell everyone you belong to Jesus And so for some of you, he's asking you to testify to your allegiance to the king. And it's time you do that. It's time you do that. For some of you, it's time to stop sinning and repent. It's time to obey. It's time to confess your sin. And it's time to do what's right by King Jesus. And whatever that is, it's time to obey. Today is time to repent. Today is time to say, King Jesus... You are worthy of my obedience. I was at a talk not too long ago, and the brother and I got his point. He was trying to say, you know, following Jesus isn't about going to church. It doesn't matter if you go to church. He says it's not about, and I can even list a bunch of things that, that we know that God desires of us to follow him. And he says it's not about that. It's about faith. It's about faith in Jesus. And I get that. Because we're not saved because we muster a certain amount of allegiance to Jesus. We're saved because through faith we love King Jesus and we want to follow him. And he sees that. He knows that. We're saved by our, our faith. But I think it's wrong for us to juxtapose faith with our obedience. You follow what I'm saying there? I think it's wrong. I think we've got to stop doing that. We've got to find a way to say, it is your faith, your love and love for Jesus that, that makes you his disciple and redeems us of our sin. But he expects obedience from us. And we can't, we've got to stop separating those two like as if they're, they're totally in opposition to one another. Well, you can have faith, but whether you obey Jesus or not is immaterial. I mean, that's just for something later on. It's not. Jesus said, Follow me. Follow me. And so for some of us, it's time to repent of our sin. Stop sinning. and Confess your sin. And I realize, man, it's like saying, you know, jump 10 feet high, Jimmy. And you're like, I can't jump 10 feet high. I can't quit sinning. 
No, you can't, but Jesus can. Jesus can help you. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.